0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of January 5th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Year in Review, Golden by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript Year in Review Arvada Community's giving spirit shines through up and down year by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press Year in Review Jefferson County by Andrew Frehley the Jeffco Transcript Jeffco's new climate action plan addresses emissions climate change impacts by Corinne Westman for the Jeffco Transcript. Polis commutes four inmate sentences. Denver trooper included. By Jesse Paul and Sandra Fish, the Colorado Sun. year in review jefferson county by andrew fraley while death threats and apartment fires have run as big news for jefferson county this year there were still other happy events happening small and local the benchmark theater held the world premiere of local actress Suzanne Neppi's The COVID Wife which gave a heart-wrenching reenactment of her and her husband's struggle with COVID The Lakewood Cultural Center also hosted incredible musicians like the Baroque Chamber Orchestra and their performance of Vivaldi's Seasons in October. Or Daniel Hughes' delicately performing Schumann, Beethoven, and Liszt in September. But let's look at what else happened in Jeffco in 2022. The Lakewood Apartment Fire Halloween in Lakewood this year started with flames as Tiffany Square Apartments burned at 4 a.m., killing Kathleen Payton, 31, and her daughter, Jasmine Payton Aguayo, 10. The fire damaged 14 units and forced the residents of all 32 to be displaced, with the American Red Cross helping find shelter at the time. The fire was found to be intentionally set, according to the Lakewood Police, though, and two juveniles were arrested on suspicion of first-degree murder and first-degree arson on November 6th. Jeffco Board of Education voted to close 16 elementary schools. After almost three months of public hearings and meetings, the Jefferson County Board of Education unanimously voted to close 16 elementary schools on November 10th, approving a consolidation plan initially presented to the board by the district on August 25th. Under enrollment and lack of resources were continuously cited as consolidation reasonings by the district and board over that time with specific attention to inequity in school programs due to stretched district resources. An hour-long public comment before the vote showed no parent, teacher, or community member speaking in support of the decision. Though, Many parents said they saw a lack of public process and input over the three months leading to the vote, as well as the decisions being made too quickly. "Quote: If I thought that regional opportunities for thriving schools would cause kids to lose anything without gaining a great deal in return, I would absolutely vote no, Board Member Paula Reed said. As an educator, I cannot leave some schools, some kids in under-resourced schools, while others get everything they need and more. Other common concerns from parents were programs at schools, like the dual language program at Emory and how they would transfer. If the district doesn't provide us with the support or the resources and training that the teachers need, It's going to disappear, Ada Klein, a parent from Emory, said after the vote. Elections 2022 Marijuana and Jeffco Sheriff Three measures for Jefferson County were on the ballot in November, and all three failed. Two were related to marijuana and unincorporated Jeffco. Ballot measure 1A and 1B, which would have allowed the sale and production of marijuana along with sales tax on it. Unincorporated areas like Evergreen and Conifer were included as well as South Jeffco, but large areas within and around Lakewood would have been included as well, such as almost the entire area surrounded by US 285 and C470. The resolution estimated an added $600,000 in taxes would have gone to Jeffco within the first fiscal year, with the 3-6% to tax on marijuana sales continuing after. The final measure was attempting to change Jeffco's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. It would have limited only property taxes, removing the ceiling for other taxes, allowing the county to keep more revenue. As for the sheriff's race, Democrat Regina Marinelli, who was lieutenant of the Support Services Division at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, won over Republican Ed Brady, who recently became Arvada Police Chief. Marinelli will be sworn in on January 10th. When asked what her first actions as sheriff will be, she said working on a wellness center for her staff as well as certifying staff in therapies that will soon be used in the jail as soon as possible. Lakewood City Council Members Face Email Death Threats While members had been facing racist, sexist, and homophobic threats for months, December saw an exploration of those threats and what members see in them. Lakewood police and the city's IT officials were unable to track the exact source of the emails according to Mayor Paul, Adam Paul. Efforts were only able to trace the emails to a server in Russia. One counselor felt that the police and city had not done enough to investigate the emails though, while others, including Paul, believed the actions of some council members were perpetuating the threats. Councilmember Anita Springsteen said she received an email in April that threatened her with sexual assault and the bombing of her car unless she resigned from city council. Springsteen has not attended a council meeting in person since, citing fears over the threats and felt the city hadn't investigated the threat enough. Others such as Paul and council member Jaslyn also received threats, most recently on November 28th, just minutes before a council meeting where the topic of gun control came up during public comment even though it was not on the agenda. While Springsteen has spoken about the threat against her extensively in multiple Council meetings, believing that talking about the threats is, quote, the only way to dial it back, Charizé believes mentioning the threats repeatedly at meetings has numbed the community to the issue. She, along with Paul, also believe that members' interactions with certain groups agitated on divisive subjects have escalated the threats. Shah points to the November 28th meeting where she said Councilmember Mary Jansen told gun rights activists, including Rocky Mountain gun owners, that gun control was going to be spoken on at public comment. Doing so made Shah feel like she was put in danger. Shah added that receiving threats, quote, is not unique to one city councilor. This is a problem in our community and I think in a post-Trump world. People are emboldened to say sort of say things in a ways that we haven't historically seen, she said. Metro shelters open for cold fronts, but experts argue it's not enough. A vicious end of the year. The Denver metro area saw up to minus 40 degree wind chill in the week leading up to Christmas. The extreme weather prompted the opening of multiple emergency shelters for the unhoused, but it also prompted experts and activists to question what temperature should be required for them to open. These emergency shelters are meant to be overflow as more people check into shelters during cold weather, and especially extreme weather. For the week leading up to Christmas, Denver opened the Denver Coliseum for the purpose, though specified it was for anyone not just the unhoused since power outages were possible. The Severe Weather Shelter Network in Jefferson County stayed open for multiple nights as well. The Aurora Day Resource Center was an option in the West, and the Winter Shelter Network, another organization of churches, opened to serve Douglas County. The critiques of these emergency shelters from experts and activists come from the low temperatures used to judge when to open and when actual negative effects due to the weather start to happen before those temperatures. Doctors from the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and Denver Health sent a joint letter to Denver's Department of Housing, Stability and Department of Public Health and Environment pointing out unhoused people have many of the risk factors for hypothermia and frostbite, like exhaustion, dehydration, malnutrition, which can happen even at 45 degrees depending on wind and moisture. One of the argued temperature bars is Denver's 10 degrees or six inches of snow and among the most restrictive of the metro area other areas are 32 degrees with moisture like snow and 20 degrees without. Year in Review, Arvada Community's Giving Spirit Shines Through, Up, and Down Year by Riley Dunn. Coming on the heels of one of the most difficult years in Arvada's history, 2022 brought a degree of normalcy back to the tragedy-stricken community. Even in hard times, the community rallied for one another time and time again, evoking Mr. Rogers' timeless sentiment, look for the helpers. Here are some of the most notable events in Arvada from the past year. Arvadaans support Marshall fire victims. In the wake of the most devastating wildfire in Colorado's history, one that almost spread to northwest Arvada, Arvadaans came together to provide support for victims. City Council members Lisa Smith and Lauren Simpson led the charge on a gift card drive that raised over $70,000 for families impacted by the fire. Folks from around the city donated gift cards and that helped families rebuild their lives after the disaster struck. The Arvada Elks Lodge hosted a concert for our neighbors, headlined by acclaimed soul singer Hazel Miller. The benefit show was attended by over 300 people and raised $25,000 for fire victims. Community shows solidarity with Ukraine. Arvadans didn't just help their neighbors directly to the north, when war broke out in Ukraine earlier this year, the community did what it does best—found ways to help. The clinicians at Arvada West Family Medicine, led by nurse practitioner Ellie Tita who is originally from Ukraine, worked together to send multiple to send medical supplies in mass to their war-torn homeland. For nurse ha- Halenia Kendyuk, also from Ukraine, the conflict hit close to home. Quote, my nephew is an officer in the war right now, Kendiuk said. I call him every day. His mom is my sister. It's very hard. My mom's still in Ukraine. My sister's still in Ukraine. My younger sister is a nurse. Their efforts paid off. Thanks in part to donations from other Arvadans, Tita Rinko and her staff successfully sent dozens of boxes of medical supplies to the war zone. Clinician Svetlana Sintzheimer said it represented America's giving spirit. It's why we love America, because people, don't, people just donate and support. They don't care what country, Ukrainian, Honduras, uh, South Africa. American people every time support for difficult time. And right now we're thinking of Ukraine since said in a similar vein, City Council member Lisa Smith traveled to Poland after the war broke out to deliver medical supplies to Ukraine. Smith worked with Operation White Stork organized by Team Rubicon, an international non-governmental organization specializing in disaster response that Smith has worked with in the past. While she was abroad, Smith felt Arvada's support through messages of support and the image in the Old Town water tower lit in blue and yellow, the national colors of Ukraine. When I landed in Krakow, I was picked up by another volunteer and we got on the highway. I saw a tower. It was lit up with Ukrainian, flower colors, Ukrainian flag colors and I immediately thought of Arvada and had this moment of feeling like there's a bit of Arvada here. It was really cool to see how even in Arvada we still support, Smith said. Arvada Harvest Festival returns. After a two-year absence, the Arvada Harvest Festival braved rain and dreary skies to make a triumphant return at a new location in September. Moved from its usual location in Old Town, the new parade route along 58th Avenue was met with a warm reception among attendees. This year's parade featured performances from local high school marching bands and cheerleading troops, along with floats and other entries. The event had been on hiatus since 2019 after it was cancelled in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic and in 2021 due to a permit issue. The festival, organized by the Arvada Junior Chamber Foundation, dates back to 1925. This year's iteration was the Harvest Festival's 97th showing overall. Jeffco School Board votes to close 16 elementary schools. To the disappointment of many parents, students and teachers, the Jefferson County School Board voted to close 16 elementary schools in the area, including multiple schools in Arvada, such as Peck and Campbell Elementary Schools. About 2,500 students and over 400 staff members were displaced by the decision, which which will take effect after the 2022-23 school year ends. Arvada Historical Society Celebrates 50th Anniversary In August, the Arvada Historical Society celebrated its 50th anniversary with Arvada Historical Society Month, a month-long celebration of the city's history and the folks who have worked to preserve it. Tragically, the historical society's foremost researcher, Nancy Young, passed away a few months later at the age of age, at the age of 70. APD officer Dylan Vakoff murdered while responding to domestic disturbance. Over a year after the murder of Arvada police officer Gordon Hurley in the Old Town Arvada shooting, Officer Dylan Vakoff, a Ralston Valley graduate and member of APD since 2019 was killed while responding to a domestic disturbance on September 11th. Bakoff was a man serious about his purpose in life, which was to live life to the fullest, Arvada Police Lieutenant Paul Carroll, Bakoff's supervisor at APD, said at Bakoff's funeral. Shortly after Bakoff's murder, the Arvada Elks Lodge held a fundraiser which raised $12,000 for his family. Police Chief Link Strait retires, Ed Brady named successor. After 45 years with the department and four trying years as chief, Link Strait retired from the Arvada Police Department. Former Deputy Chief Ed Brady was named the new chief of police and was sworn in at a ceremony in December. Strait said that he considered the decision for a long time and added that Brady's availability following this year's election, where Brady ran for Jefferson County Sheriff, played into his decision. Ultimately, in the wake of Beasley and Vakov's deaths, Strait didn't think he could get another officer, see another officer get killed. Quote, Quite frankly, to wonder if I could do that again, Strait said, I just didn't. I just didn't know if I could do that again. So I recognized that I had an incredible career here. Just very fortunate for everything that was afforded to me, and it was probably time. Year in review Golden by Corinne Westman. Iconic golden events return after pandemic related hiatus. Several of the city's major events returned in twenty twenty two after a two year interruption during the COVID nineteen pandemic. The Goldens and Golden event returned February 5th with thousands of Golden Retrievers and their owners visiting Washington Avenue. The iconic Buffalo Bill Days also returned to downtown Golden July 28th to the 31st. Parfit Park was packed with people for the annual festival and concerts and on July 30th the traditional parade drew crowds of visitors and locals alike to Washington Avenue. Other events like National Night out and business attractions like the Coors Brewery Tours resumed after taking a break during the pandemic. Overall, 2022 was a return to normalcy for much of the community. Coors Tech Superblock approved offers unique opportunity for Golden. After announcing the project in 2021, Coors Tech began the public input process on its new headquarters and superblock concept in earnest in early July 2022. The project to build the company's new headquarters along with residential and commercial space in its superblock near 10th Street and Ford Avenue went through several community meetings throughout the winter. There residents offered feedback on how to best incorporate the project into downtown Golden. The 12-acre property was zoned for commercial use in manufacturing, and Coors Tech plans to build its new headquarters plus other mixed-use buildings there over the next 15 to 20 years. Company representatives were hoping to start construction on the Superblock's first building, the new headquarters, sometime in 2023. Throughout the public approval process, residents and other stakeholders emphasized how the project will be a unique one for downtown Golden, offering new residential and commercial space, an arts district, and more. By spring 2022, Course Tech got the nod from the City's Planning Commission before taking its rezoning application to City Council on June 7th. Council approved the rezoning, making Course Tech next step site planning process, which only required Planning Commission approval. Coors Tech started the demolition process on site in late 2022, with four of the oldest buildings on campus set to be partially res- preserved. As of December 27th, Coors Tech hadn't applied for a building permit to start construction on its headquarters, but the city expected to receive an application sometime in 2023. Clear Creek Corridor sees record visitation during summer. Downtown Golden was busier than ever in summer 2022, thanks in part to those looking to cool down in Clear Creek. Since 2012, creek visitation has increased year over year, so before the summer the city instituted paid parking along parts of the Clear Creek corridor, approving an ordinance that required rafting and tubing outfitters to have a city permit, and made other changes to improve the visitor experience and help control crowds. Unsurprisingly, 2022 saw more users in the creek and along the adjacent paths, fewer available parking spaces in downtown and more sales tax revenue. As an example, one of the busiest days of the year was July 4th. Between noon and 1pm, there were 1,524 trail users by Lions Park Ballfields and 799 in the creek. The city was considering additional items to implement for summer 2023 and beyond. Unfortunately, there were two fatalities on Clear Creek in early July, both west of the city limits. Officials stressed that those rafting and tubing should have proper safety gear and follow posted signage. With quarry expansion approved, Martin Marietta swaps land with Jeffco Open Space. After years of discussion and planning, Martin Marietta Materials and Jeffco Open Space have conducted a land swap in South Golden. In fall 2022, Martin Marietta received both county and city approval to expand its aggregate quarry into 64 acres south of the current site along US-40. The land previously belonged to Jeffco Open Space and the agency can have it back at no cost once mining operations are complete. In exchange, Jeffco Open Space has received 21 acres between two parcels north of the quarry, a trail easement on the quarry's eastern edge, and $14.5 million over the next 30 years toward buying the 1,200-acre Goltra property. Martin Marietta will also transfer another 49-acre parcel north of the quarry once mining operations are complete in a few decades. As part of the land swap, Jeffco Open Space now owns the six-acre Bachman property at the corner of Heritage Road and US-40. It plans to deed it to Golden for a future park. Thanks to this quarry expansion, Martin Marietta representatives believed mining operations would last another 30 to 40 years, depending on market conditions. Once complete, the area will become a reservoir and water rights will transfer to Jeffco. Mobile home residents fight to protection fight for protections at state level. In early 2022, Golden Hills residents were navigating rent hikes and trying to buy their mobile home park from its current owner. In the spring, the residents took that general fight to the state legislature. Lawmakers introduced bills that would add protections for mobile home park residents and the Golden Hills community pushed for all of them to be signed into law. It was a mixed outcome as the legislature passed two bills designed to deliver financial support and added protections for the 100,000 Coloradans who live in mobile home parks. However, the so called Protection for Mobile Home Park Residents Act was gutted of its key component, lot rent stabilization. This would have prevented landlords from upping rent by more than 3% or an amount that exceeds inflation within any 12 month period. Golden Hills residents hoped to renew these efforts during the 2023 legislative session to help protect those on fixed incomes from being priced out of their homes. Community Examines Housing Needs Drafts Diversity Plan In 2022, the City of Golden community members had separate but intense discussions about housing needs and the City's Racial Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Action Plan. In August, consultants told the city how the percentage of families and working-age people in Golden has declined since 2000, middle and low-income households are being pushed out by exorbitant housing costs, and 95% of Golden's workforce lives outside the city limits. The consultants recommended several steps city officials and community members can take to address Golden's current and projected housing needs such as expediting the permitting process and forming an Affordable Housing Committee. In October, City officials and community members reviewed the findings and recommendations together to determine which steps the new Affordable Housing Committee should prioritize. Additionally, throughout the fall, officials began finalizing the City's Ready Action Plan (R.E.D.I.). Consultants drafted it based on community input gathered during late 2021 and early 2022. In September, the consultants gave the community a draft for final revisions before City Council approved it in November. The five-year Ready Action Plan outlines tangible steps the City of Golden and the whole community can make toward making Golden a better place for everyone. Denver Brick Company looks to expand mining along Dakota Hogback. All throughout 2022, Goldenites were fighting to protect the Hogback as the Denver Brick Company plans to expand its clay mining operations in Northwest Golden. Those efforts will likely continue into 2023. Nonprofit Protect the Hogback and other objectors raised concerns about the operation throughout the first half of 2022 which prompted a few delays in the State Land Board's hearing. Finally, on July 20th, the State Land Board approved Denver Brick Company's application to expand operations at the Golden Mine, which is state-owned land the company has been permitted to mine since 1977. The company's next step in expanding its operations is gaining county approval. It was scheduled for a November 7th community meeting with Jeffco Planning and Zoning, but it was canceled because of technical difficulties. As of December 28th, it has not been rescheduled. City determining future of Ulysses Park, Rooney Road Sports Complex. <coughs> As Jeffco Open Space looks to expand amenities in and around Ten Cup Ridge Park, The City of Golden has discussed moving multi-use fields from the nearby Rooney Road Sports Complex to Ulysses Park. The City has leased RRSC through 2026, but Jeffco plans to use one of the five fields to build a slash processing center and generally develop 10 Cup Ridges trail system. As City officials discussed in summer 2022, the County wants to create an open space park environment on the property. If golden intends to maintain four fields at rrsc it needs to reinvest in the artificial turf fields which are at the end of their life cycle however throughout fall 2022 city officials and other stakeholders discussed whether golden could build multi-use fields at ulysses park and not renew its rrsc lease in 2026. during an october 13th meeting Park users shared their feedback and concerns about reconfiguring the field at Ulysses Park. Then, at a December 6th City Council meeting, officials discussed whether to use natural grass or artificial turf for the multi-use fields. Councilors saw benefits for both options and asked for additional cost estimates so they could resume the conversation in January. POLIS COMMUTES FOUR INMATE SENTENCES, DENVER TROOPER INCLUDED, BY JESSE PAUL AND SANDRA FISH, THE COLORADO SUN. GOVERNOR JARED POLIS CUT SHORT THE PRISON SENTENCES OF FOUR INMATES AND PARDONED TWENTY PEOPLE, INCLUDING A FORMER COLORADO STATE PATROL TROOPER WHO GUARDED THE STATE CAPITOL AND PLEADED GUILTY TO A MISDEMEANOR CHARGE AFTER POINTING A GUN. At a passing driver near the building, the Denver building, in 2021 while he was on duty. The former trooper, Jay Hemphill, pleaded guilty in Denver earlier this year to misdemeanor menacing. He was sentenced to a year of probation. Polis commuted Hemphill's sentence and pardoned him. You served the state of Colorado with honor and distinction for 26 years, serving and protecting five different governors, Polis wrote to Hemphill. You made a mistake in a brief instant when you thought you were under threat and no one was physically harmed. According to an arrest affidavit for Hemphill, the woman said she was driving her truck near the Capitol and attempting to make a right turn onto East 14th from Sherman when Hemphill crossed in front of her vehicle, pulled out his gun, pointed it at her, and started to yell. The encounter was captured on video. I was afraid I was going to get shot, the woman told Denver Police. The affidavit says Hemphill, who has worked at the Capitol since January 1998 and was a constant presence in the building before the incident, reported the encounter to a Colorado State Patrol sergeant. Hemphill started working for the Colorado State Patrol in 1995 and was a decorated trooper. In 2007, Hemphill shot and killed a 32-year-old man who declared himself, quote, the emperor, while carrying a loaded 357 caliber handgun inside the Capitol. Receive, Hemphill received Colorado State Patrol's highest award for stopping the armed man, Aaron Snyder, shortly after he entered then-Governor Bill Ritter's office. A spokesperson for the State Patrol said Thursday evening that Hemphill left the agency shortly after the 2021 incident. Four prison sentences commuted. The most high profile prisoner whose term was shortened by polis is Michael Clifton, who in 2000 was sentenced to 98 years in prison after being convicted of second degree kidnapping, two counts of first degree burglary, and three counts of aggravated robbery with intent to kill. Clifton and Renee Lima Marin were teenagers when they robbed a video store in Aurora in 1998. Lima Marin, who was also sentenced to 98 years in prison but mistakenly released in 2008 only to be re-imprisoned and then released after a court battle, was pardoned by then-Governor John Hickenlooper in 2017. The pardon was issued in large part to prevent Lima Marin from being deported to his native Cuba. The victim of the robbery, Jason Kasperik, originally objected to Clifton's release, but... Kasperik met with Clifton's family. CBS4 reported over the summer and decided to support the clemency request. Polis ordered Clifton released on parole January 31st, writing in a letter to Clifton that he has, quote, taken responsibility for his actions and recognizes the mistakes you made in the past. A 98-year sentence for the crimes you committed is well beyond the typical range a result of being given consecutive sentences on each of your charges, Polis wrote. As you are aware, the co-defendant in your case has already been pardoned by Governor John Hickenlooper. These disparities, coupled with the work you have done while incarcerated, supports granting your application. The other prisoners whose terms were cut short by Polis are Sidney Cooley was convicted in Denver of theft, drug, and a weapons possession charge in a 2002 case and convicted of six counts of second-degree burglary in a 2005 Jefferson County case. He has served 18 years of a 54-year sentence. Cooley will be allowed to serve as parole in Ohio. Polis ordered him paroled after January 31st. A 54-year sentence for the crimes you committed is well beyond the typical range, Polis wrote in a letter to Cooley. Robin Ferris will be eligible for parole January 31st after serving 31 years of a life sentence for first-degree felony murder in Arapahoe County. Court documents say she was in her late 20s when she fatally shot her former lover, Beatrice King, in an apartment in February 1990. Police noted that Colorado's laws have changed and that now her crime would be considered a second-degree murder offense and that she would be eligible for parole after 20 years. Denver Democratic State Representative-Elect Elizabeth Epps had been seeking clemency for Ferris and celebrated the news on Twitter on Thursday. Ferris has been in Colorado's prison system longer than just two other women. Sean Marshall has served 14 years of a 45-year sentence for aggravated robbery in 2008 and will be released on parole at the end of January instead of in 2038. Polis noted that Marshall's sentence was ten times longer than some of the other seven people convicted in the same El Paso County crime. While you have been incarcerated, you have confronted the choices that led you to prison, Polis wrote in a letter to Marshall. You overcame many obstacles and worked hard to change your life. Other pardons issued by Polis... Polis also issued pardons Thursday to 18 other people, many of them convicted of drug crimes or lower-level crimes, like theft and burglary. Vicente Antilan, Marla Bautista, Jay Biesenmeyer and Wendy Biesenmeyer, William Bray, Joseph Burns, Daniel Collins, Carrie Davidson, Samuel DeBono, Caleb Haley, Mark Harmon, Walter Hooten, Charles Hurlbert, Tel Jones. John Krause, Terrence Miller, Stephen Thomas, Stacey Tillman, Ryan Tomka. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Jeffco's new Climate Action Plan addresses emissions, climate change impacts by Corinne Westman. As Colorado becomes a hotter, drier place thanks to impacts from climate change, county officials want to make Jefferson County a more responsible, more resilient place. The county plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions over the next dozen years and ensure residents and business owners are prepared for the increased risk of flood floods and wildfires. On December 20th, the Board of County Commissioners approved Jeffco's first Climate Action Plan, which has been in the works since September 2020. We have a single mission, to protect and hand on the planet to the next generation, Commissioner Andy Kerr said. today. I am excited we are finally putting that action in the Climate Action Plan. Over the past year, county officials have been collecting public input on the plan with community meetings and a survey, including a public comment period this November. The Climate Action Plan outlines reducing the county's greenhouse gas emissions by 73% from 2015 levels by 2035. It also wants to reduce climate-related risks for everyone, prioritizing those experiencing the greatest disparities. According to the county's updated hazard mitigation plan, wildfires and floods are Jeffco's two most frequent and devastating hazards. Both are exacerbated by rising global temperatures. The county states that even under a moderate 2050 climate scenario, Jeffco could experience $880 million in annual flooding and fire damage. The climate action plan is intended to address these risks by re- developing solutions to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to rising temperatures and to become the community to help the community become more resilient to hazards and risks. Plus, it will contribute to statewide efforts to address Colorado's climate risks, county officials explained. Quote, For us to succeed, all parties will need to be moving in a common direction, Commissioner Tracy Craft tharp said. I'm looking forward to, for our communities to pull together resources and expertise as we begin to move forward addressing this very important issue. The plan outlines six sectors where the county can look to reduce emissions and or improve resiliency. They are water, food and waste, ecosystems, transportation, energy supply, and buildings. There are 20 solutions outlined across the six sectors and three that are described as foundational that are outside any individual sector. Editor's note for a list of all 23 solutions, see the accompanying graphic. During the December 20th presentation, staff said Jeffco won't be able to achieve any of these goals alone will require collaboration among municipalities, special districts, nonprofits, residents, and other partners. Commissioner Leslie Dahlkemper agreed, adding, a laser-like focus countywide on sustainability is not only good for our community and public health, it's good for our local economy and can help save taxpayer dollars. To view a draft of the Climate Action Plan, or for some reason, English and Spanish, Visit jeffco.us slash 4410 slash climate action plan. Shoppers face statewide fee for bags. Lawmakers, Polis gave green light to new charge during 2021 session. By Jesse Paul, the Colorado Sun. Colorado businesses are required to charge consumers a $0.10 fee for each plastic bag and paper bag they carry out of the stores as of January 1st. That's because of a bill passed by the state legislature in 2021 and signed into law by Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat. The fee, which isn't subject to the state's 2.9% sales tax, may be higher if a town, city, or county enacts a higher charge. People who are in federal or state food assistance programs don't pay the fees as long as they can prove that, those, that they are enrolled in one of those programs. Businesses are required to send 60% of the bag fee revenue they collect to the municipality they operate in. If the business is within an unincorporated part of a county, the money will be sent to the county. Local governments would be required to spend the money on the following initiatives. Bag fee enforcement costs waste diversion programs, including outreach and education. The remaining 40% of the bag fee revenue will be kept by the businesses. Stores that collect less than $20 in bag fees in a given quarter don't have to remit the revenue to their municipality or county and can keep the money. Plastic bags will be banned in Colorado starting in 2024 with some exceptions. The 2021 bill also bans the distribution of all single-use plastic bags in Colorado starting in 2024, but there are asterisks. Restaurants that prepare or serve food in individual portions for immediate on- or off-premises consumption would be exempt, as would stores that operate solely in Colorado and have three or fewer locations. Businesses that are still allowed to offer plastic bags must collect on a fee of at least 10 cents on each bag. The fee may be higher if a city or county enacts a higher charge. Say goodbye to plastic foam. It's not just plastic bags that are being done away with. The 2021 bill also bans polystyrene products such as Styrofoam across the state starting on January 1, 2024. The only exception is that restaurants will be able to continue polystyrene products for takeout after that date until their existing inventory is gone. What if businesses don't comply? Municipalities and cities will be able to sue businesses that don't comply with the new bag fee and styrofoam rules. They also may assess the following fines, $500 for a second violation, $1,000 for a third or subsequent violation. The fines can be assessed per violation during a retail sale. In other words, if a business illegally handed out 10 plastic bags during one transaction, they would be considered to have violated the law only once. The measure also repeals a state prohibition, barring local governments from introducing restrictions on plastic materials that are more stringent than the states. This story is from the Colorado Sun. For physical and mental health, woman finds success with ketamine. By Allison Berg, Jeremy Moore, Rocky Mountain PBS. After a car crash nearly six years ago left her with bouts of chronic neck pain, anxiety and depression, Allison Foley felt as though she had exhausted all her treatment options. Nothing worked. Various medications, talk therapy and numbing agents seemed to put a bandage over the underlying issues but the pain always bubbled to the surface when initial dopamine hits wore off. After years of frustration, Foley spoke with a friend in California who used ketamine to cope with similar issues. Foley heard Colorado was introducing a similar program offering ketamine therapy and decided to give it a shot, feeling she had nothing to lose. After three months of taking a small ketamine dose once a week at home, Foley said her life transformed. I was actually able to face the pain head on and create a new narrative around it. That's helped me not only manage my chronic pain, but accelerate my life to the next level, Foley said. I can't say that ketamine has fixed my chronic pain, but it's given me a different lens to view my life. The United States Food and Drug Administration classifies ketamine as a Class 3 substance, meaning it is legal for medical purposes in all 50 states. Several practitioners in the Denver area prescribe ketamine. Foley obtains her treatment through WonderMed, LLC a platform that provides ketamine doses and therapy services to remote patients. Foley takes her dose once a week at her Denver home and meets with the clinician monthly to discuss progress. Because ketamine alters Foley's mind, she takes it under the supervision of a close friend or family member, though she said she has never had any issues while under its influence. The experience is very calming, Foley said. It's essentially like a warm hug. Foley said the ketamine helps her step outside herself, and look at her anxious thoughts from an objective place rather than being consumed by them. There's a voice that can get louder or quieter depending on the day or depending on what I'm going through that can really disrupt my life, Foley said. This treatment has given me the opportunity to allow my true inner healer to step up and have a dialogue with that negative voice. The experience lasts about an hour and Foley meditates, journals, and processes her difficult emotions and memories without being consumed by them. It allows you to go to a deeper level of your subconscious and eliminate the anxiety that comes with working on a deeper level of yourself," Foley said. Lauren Swanson, a physician's assistant and lead clinician with WonderMed, said ketamine differs from antidepressants and other psychedelic medications because it is fast-acting and grows new neural connections that change a person's brain, allowing them to shift their perspective and cope with traumas or pain. You have these major shifts, and that's what sticks with you after the ketamine is gone, Swanson said. It's molding that neuroplasticity to your benefit in a way that works for you, end quote. In addition to aiding mental health treatment, ketamine is also used as an anesthetic in hospital settings and for animals. In larger doses, ketamine can tranquilize a person or immediately ease suicidal thoughts. Ketamine has had recent national attention from a case in Colorado. Administered improperly, it can have fatal consequences. Earlier this year, an amended autopsy found that Elijah McLean died because paramedics injected him with too large a dose of ketamine. McLean was put in a neck hold and injected with ketamine after being stopped by police in Aurora for, quote, being suspicious. McLean's death resulted in legislation that restricted how the drug can be used by first responders. The Mayo Clinic reported that ketamine can have negative interactions with dozens of other drugs, which is why the drug is recommended only to be taken with a prescription. Additionally, the clinic's website states ketamine can produce unwanted side effects, both during and after usage, which can include dizziness, fainting, seizures, and unusual tiredness or weakness. Still, Swanson said those like Foley who are working with mental health diagnosis of anxiety and depression are finding the small prescribed doses of ketamine work quote, remarkably well for those patients. Swanson said ketamine is one addition to a recent renaissance of psychedelic drugs used in mental health treatments. Colorado recently legalized psilocybin mushrooms for therapeutic purposes. Swanson said psychedelics have become a popular choice when traditional selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, have not worked or have come with the cost of too many side effects. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS, a nonprofit public broadcaster, providing community stories across Colorado over the air and online, used by permission. For more and to support Rocky Mountain PBS, visit rmpbs.org. State spends unprecedented money on homelessness. Crisis is still expected to get worse before any improvement. By Jennifer Brown, The Colorado Sun. Colorado has more money than ever to spend on solving homelessness as well as the most comprehensive data to date about how many people need services. Still, the crisis is expected to get worse before it gets better, as the total economic impact of the global pandemic has yet to emerge, and the array of solutions now in the works will take years to fully materialize, according to a panel of experts who met Friday in downtown Denver. We have a lot of catching up to do because this has been an unfunded crisis for so long said Kathy Alderman, Communications Director for the Coalition, Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Colorado has, for a few years, dedicated about $9 million in state funds for housing, adding about $45 million annually in 2019 through what's called a vendor fee for affordable housing. Legislators have also tagged unclaimed property funds, for affordable housing, although the law is activated only in certain years because of the taxpayers' bill of rights. This year, the governor's budget includes plans to spend $200 million on homelessness initiatives, thanks in part to one-time American Rescue Plan Act funding. But that's not enough, Alderman said. The federal government simply certainly hasn't kept up with the scale of the crisis across the country, and this one-time infusion of funds gives us a huge opportunity. But if we're not planning for it, what happens at the end of it? I don't know that we can make promises beyond it." The State Office of Homeless Initiatives, part of the Colorado Department of Local Affairs, is seeking proposals from local governments to create a Denver Regional Navigation Campus, a central spot for housing, food, therapy, and other services. It's also expected to begin work early next year on a master plan for a Homeless Recovery Center in Watkins, east of Denver, where people living outdoors and in shelters would go to receive treatment and job training before getting help finding long-term housing. We have an unprecedented amount of funding coming our way, said Kristen Toombs, Director of the State of Office of homelessness, Homeless Initiatives. At the city level, meanwhile, Denver's house, Office of Housing Stability and its Three years of existence has overseen the addition of 2,000 affordable homes and 225 supportive housing apartments, which come with mental health, substance abuse, and other services to help people stay housed. The office, in conjunction with other organizations, has 1,500 housing units in the pipeline, said Britta Fisher, Executive Director. The city's Office of Housing Stability budget for housing and homelessness is now at $270 million, up from about $28 million a few years ago. The boost comes in part because of Denver voters approving a 2.25% sales tax for homelessness passed in 2020 and reapproved in this year. To better gauge the scope of the problem, the state in the past few years expanded its, quote, homeless management information system which keeps track of how many people need services and what kind. People who are homeless or at risk of losing housing are entered into the system with the unique identification number tied to their name. The system allows service providers in Denver to see a, that a person who has, was staying in a Denver shelter is now getting services in Grand Junction, for example. More than 100 nonprofits and government agencies in the seven county Denver metro area enter data into the system including about 90% of all shelters. About 32,000 people in a year seek out homeless services across Colorado, according to the system. State officials are beginning to use it, too, to determine which programs are working and adjust investments in homeless prevention, Toome said, Quote, we can't help you if we don't know you exist, she said. It also enables us to really make sure that we have an understanding of how the programs are doing, so not just the need, but the impact of that work. The goal is that all service providers in all parts of the state will use the shared system, said Jamie Reif, Executive Director of the Metro Denver Homelessness Initiative, which oversees the system. Quote, It allows us to really see in real time what we actually need to be planning for, and that is incredibly important, she said. The same morning as the panel discussion, a group of people who are homeless or recently were homeless spoke out at a city-organized homeless advisory meeting. Members of House Keys Action Network. Denver, an advocacy group with members who had lived outdoors and had their belongings taken in city sweeps of encampments, said they are grateful for the influx of funding but that they also want immediate action. Quote, they didn't address any of the immediate needs that are going on right now, said Anna Miller, who was homeless for three years until getting an apartment through a voucher program a few months ago. They're still sweeping people when it's way too cold to be sweeping. We still have one of the largest lack of bathroom access in the entire country. I mean, there's nowhere to use the restroom. Terry Washington, who for years lived in Denver shelters until getting housing six months ago through the Coalition for the Homeless, said one of the hardest parts of living on the streets was limited access to running waters and toilets, since many of the nonprofits that helped the homeless locked their doors at 7 p.m. Also, Washington said she felt like she was regularly told that she didn't fit the criteria for certain housing or jobs programs. And that many who are homeless can't qualify for programs because they lost their identification, sometimes during a city camp cleanup. We really want water, she said. We want to be able to bathe. We want to be able to maintain a daily life, like when we were in a home, but we have so many restrictions. I've never done drugs, and the guidelines were strict for me. This story is from the Colorado Sun. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. I'm Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at